Let's pray. Lord God, in the hearing of your word, we ask that you would give us a new confidence in you and in the Christ through whom you have expressed your purposes. Amen. Well, in case you've closed it, do please find Isaiah chapter 6 once again. While you're finding that, let me uh, apologize for the state of my voice. I'm rapidly losing it. I, at least, have the excuse that I have a dreadful cold. Um, Unless you've all got a dreadful cold, um, there's no excuse uh, for the rest of you. So may I encourage you, please, when we're next singing, to sing loud and strong. Not quite sure what's going on tonight, but everyone's kind of feeling like they've got a terrible cold as well. Uh, But I don't think you all have. So um, do please sing up. Uh, Standing there, I often, I I can listen to what's going on. I think, oh yes, they're in fine form tonight. Uh, But tonight I'm not saying that. So uh, do go for it when the time comes. Isaiah chapter 6, page 690. (coughs) I've not been here for the last couple of weeks. I've been on holiday. So I can't be sure what's been said uh, about Isaiah so far. Uh, I've only just uh, got back, so I haven't had time to listen to sermons or uh, pick up on uh, scripts. But I hope there's been uh, an appreciation for the kind of situation into which Isaiah is addressing himself. Uh, It's a mess. It's about a hundred years or so, just a bit more, since uh, Solomon was on the throne of a united kingdom, north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And in the south, a hundred years on, uh, the kingdom is split, uh, and there have been a series of really rubbish kings. But there has been, for a while now, uh, a different kind of king. Uzziah, it's also known as Azariah. If you really want the lowdown, And for those of you I know who are taking detailed notes, you can check him out in 2 Chronicles and chapter 26. The problem is that uh, Judah, which was relatively well off, uh, is becoming far too much like the nations all around them. Uh, They've got a double problem going on. Firstly, there is massive social inequality and injustice. But that's matched, just as badly, by far too much ineffective religion. People are amassing wealth for themselves and not caring about their fellow uh, men and women. And chapter 5, as you will see there, and if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. That's how chapter 5 ends. That's how Isaiah is seeing things. That's the chapters 1 to 5 have been about the general situation in the country. But now, Isaiah has died. Now, Isaiah was a different kind of king. He was, a good, he was one of the good guys for most of his reign. But as he acquired wealth and power for himself, he actually did something very stupid. He decided that it would be a good idea since, hey, I'm the king, to go into the temple and make the sacrifices himself. Uh, And a few, about 50, of the more powerful 
priests, who had been told by God that that was their job, uh, went to him and said, "Um, I wonder if we could have a word. Uh, Actually, what you've done is only for us to do, and you're about to face a terrible judgment. Uh, And from the day that he went into the holy uh, place to make sacrifices to God, uh, Isaiah was stricken with leprosy. Not necessarily the same kind uh, we think of as leprosy today, but certainly with a, 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 a dreadful skin disease that was relatively common in those days, from which he has died. So he's been, it's kind of, it's a, uh, it's a kingship of two halves. He's been a good king, then he did something bad, and he was a bad king. And in the face of that, you can imagine what Isaiah might be feeling. We've had these good king, these bad kings. Then you sent us quite a good king. Then he went off. Then he's died. God, what is going on? With that question, Isaiah goes into the temple of God himself. We think from other things that are said that Isaiah was probably fairly closely linked to the priestly families and he may have had the right to go in as a priest, but we're not sure. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the face of his questionings, Isaiah the prophet is given uh, this radical uh, experience and we're going to find out that it, it, that experience is a new encounter with God. That it represents a new awareness of sin. And it leads to a new sense of realism about service. The first thing then in verses 1 to 4 is a new encounter with God. Isaiah has has had this mixed experience, as of all the people, of King Uzziah. And they're looking for clarity. And clarity is what Isaiah gets. The train of God's robe fills the temple. And that's just the train, the end bit of his robe. First of all, then, there's something here about scale. Isaiah is being shown that even though this was the place where God's glory was said to dwell, even though this was the place where God himself said, this is where you'll meet me, God himself is so much bigger than this meeting place. It's only, there's only space in the, in the temple uh, for a, a bit of the robe of God's glory. Yes, it's true that God's presence once a year meets the high priest in the Holy of Holies. And that might suggest, it was a very odd cubic space, it might suggest that that's where God is. No, Isaiah. God is so much bigger. So there's an issue of scale that's opened up for the prophet here. Secondly, he is reminded that even though the situation he confronts is a bit of a mess. There are others involved who are getting on with the business of praising God, even though the people's worship is a disaster zone. 
So there are, there are angels, seraphim, around the throne of God, praising him and sing, singing, holy, holy, holy. It may seem to you, Isaiah, as though the people of God have failed to give God his proper due in worship, but you may need to know, therefore, that even if humanity fails, the angels are keeping on going. The scale of God and the worship of God are bigger than Isaiah may have thought. You probably know that the word holy originally means simply separated from. Whatever humanity may be like, whatever sinners are like, when we hear the word holy, we say it is different from all of that. God is unimaginably separate. And how odd, therefore, verse 3 really is. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty. But he's actually incredibly attached to this thing he's made, the whole earth. He is not separate from the, from the earth that he has made. Although God is unimaginably separate, in other words, Isaiah, nonetheless, this earth that he has made, he has not separated himself from. He could have done. He ought to have done. It would have been acceptable, wise, sensible to do that. But he has not separated himself. He is, he is still with the whole earth because it is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, verse 4, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. It's as though God's holiness, as it were, destabilizes everything. The, the, the temple was there as Solomon's creation. It was about as permanent as they could imagine. The block that it, that it used were considered almost magical because even by Isaiah's and Isaiah's day, no one could remember how this thing had been constructed. It was so solid, immovable. But actually God's holiness is such that even the temple shakes. Isaiah's expectation of what God is like in his scale in his uh, determination to be worshipped, in his holiness. It's all being shaken. And just before we go on, let me ask a question about holiness. One of the things I'm struck by, just in the business of, of pastoral practice, week by week, is that holiness, holy, is a word we use when we come to church. It is, if you like, I don't know, I don't know whether you're the kind of person who changed out of some clothes to come to church this evening. Uh, I don't know if you're the kind of person that has church clothes. Certainly when I was growing up spiritually, there was still a culture of having church clothes. You had your everyday clothes and then you had your church clothes, your Sunday clothes. And for some, 
I notice. Holy, holiness is a kind of church clothes idea. It's what we put on when we come to church. It's something about Sundays. It's a word, it's an idea that belongs with Sundays. That God is holy in his own right. That whatever we are up to, God is busy being praised for being different. But actually then, in the Monday to Saturday world, God and our relationship with God is, well, what will God do for me? Constantly surprised by that sense of the reality for God for many of us, of God for many of us, is that, oh, I prayed this and this happened. Isn't that nice? That uh, sense of it was, it was done for me. And yes, it's true, of course, that every hair on our head is numbered and God cares for us more than he cares for the sparrows. But do we hang on in our daily relationship with God to that sense that the godness of God, that God is God and is busy being praised and is overwhelmingly, unimaginably holy, even when we haven't turned up to church to use the word? Isaiah has, verses 1 to 4, this new encounter with God. And then in verses 5 to 7, there is a new awareness for Isaiah of sin in his conviction and in his confession. Woe to me, I cried, verse 5, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Speech is absolutely key in the Old Testament. If you don't have a lot of stuff, and most people in the Old Testament don't have a lot of stuff, then there are only so many ways, uh, so many choices open to you uh, to be sinful. And one of the ways that the Old Testament latches onto again and again, and the New Testament too, to some extent, is the gap between speech and reality who you present yourself to be. They didn't have the choices that we do. They couldn't go down to the city centre and define their identity by the kind of shop that they uh, bought things in. So the, the subtle differences that we may notice are for them much broader differences. And the one that's constantly focused upon is this, the difference between who you are according to your speech and who you know yourself to be inside. I am a man of unclean lips, says Isaiah. And it picks up thoughts that have gone on in chapter 5. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. Their practice, their behavior stinks. Verse 19. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so that we may see it. They practice sin and yet they make demands on God. Verse 20, in fact, chapter 5. They name evil as good, and they name good as evil. They have spurned the word of God, according to verse 24. They've got their own words wrong, and they don't care about the words 
that come from God himself. They engage in in drinking games in verse 22, uh, but they acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice. That's a speech. I declare that you whom I know to be guilty are innocent. I declare uh, that I am denying justice to you, although you are innocent. Speech is key. And Isaiah, therefore, says, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Faced with that sense of conviction, my eyes have seen the king. And you know probably that in the Old Testament, to see God was to die. So we've had the new encounter. We've had a new awareness of sin. And now uh, we get the most surprising set of uh, responses. Verses 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And that, boys and girls, is where the reading used to finish. always used to frustrate me enormously. That, uh, the, um, it was, used to be a set reading for Trinity Sunday. And Isaiah chapter 6 would go through from verse 1 to verse 8. And doesn't that sound fantastic? A new encounter with God leads to a new awareness of sin, the conviction and the confession. And uh, one of the angels comes along and uh, takes the, uh, uh, from the altar takes the uh, coal, touches Isaiah's lips, and he can then say, never mind the the sin anymore, he's obviously been cleansed, Uh, he says, uh, whom shall I, God says, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Isn't that wonderful? Except if you go on. Because it stops being wonderful then. It sounds, it's a wonderful self-contained unit to that point. Because uh, Isaiah has been made, has gone through a process so that he can be available for God's service. And that's true. But if we leave it like that, we fail to address what looks like seriously bad news in verses 9 to 13. Well, first of all, let's, let's look at, uh, what will we call it, 6, I suppose, through to 8. One of the seraphs flies to him, live coal from, from, taken from the altar, taken from the place of sacrifice, taken from the place where God and humanity meet and sin is dealt with. With it, he touches Isaiah's mouth and says, see this, the sacrifice, the symbol of the sacrifice has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It is a magnificent statement. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, verse 9, Go and tell this people. Let's stop there for a moment. There's encouragement here. In the commission to Isaiah, we're reminded that it is possible, extraordinarily. How can it be possible? And yet it is. It is possible to speak God's word. 
It is possible to go out into the world tomorrow. You just have to be a prophet like Isaiah, but we'll get to that later. Um, And to speak the word of the living God. And actually, of course, you don't have to be a prophet like Isaiah. You and I can go into the Monday world, and what we say can be the word of God. Now, that's astonishing, isn't it? That the living God of heaven and earth should make his words available to you and me so that we could speak them, whatever they are. We're not left groping in the dark. We're not left wondering what that fuzzy noise is. We can go and speak God's word. The problem, once you go on from 9, the first part of verse 9, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. That's the message. And then about the message, verse 10, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I do not want them healed. It's what God says. The discouragement is that no one is going to listen to you. Isaiah. And that's actually what the rest of Isaiah is about. We've had the first five chapters. That's saying this is the bad situation. Verse six, uh, chapter 6, Isaiah gets his commission from God to go out there and tell them the word. And the rest is Isaiah giving them the word and them not listening. And a terrible judgment then falls on the people of God because they will not do what God says. And that judgment, if it's just down to them, that judgment is their fault. But what this is saying is that judgment itself comes from God. The judgment uh, and the choosing of God's people happen in this world. That's what this is saying. We'll come in a moment to whether that makes sense and what we feel about it. But let's be clear that that is what it's saying. I do not want them healed. (coughs) Why not? Because the sins are too severe. It's too disastrous what they have done to one another. I do not want them healed yet. There's a bit of yet at the end of this chapter, and we'll come to that. I don't want them healed. I want them to go through the experience of dreadful judgment. It's going to be exile. It's going to be large-scale destruction. And I want them to go through that because they need to know what they are not knowing, what they are refusing to know, that I am holy. Five chapters have been full of the dreadful things that people can do. But this chapter is full of the worst thing, the worst thing that can happen for them then and for us now is for God to withdraw his word to make the heart of the people callous, to make their ears dull and close their eyes. That is the worst thing that can happen. And this is, remember, in a society in which there is a vast amount of jolly good religion. But the vast amount of jolly good religion is happening where there is no word from God. Isaiah is given the word from God and told, and they're not going to pay attention to that either. 
And if it seems to you that this is odd and bizarre, that it's weird, harsh, and hard, then go to Mark chapter 4 and verses 10 to 20, which is what we had read as our gospel reading, and to what Jesus himself, good, kind, nice, meek, mild Jesus, has to say about parables. He says, it is given to you to understand, but for most people, they only function to close their ears, to shut their eyes, to to darken their understanding. The word of God comes into the world, and some listen, some refuse. And it is by God's judgment that it is so. That's what Jesus says. And again, we have to say, well, it's exactly what we experience. It's true of all gospel proclamation. Don't you have friends in your life to whom you have said something about the nature of God as he's found in Jesus Christ, and you simply cannot understand why they will not get it into their heads. You've even been nice to them, and they still can't get it into their heads. Why not? Because for the time being, God has closed that door. And yet you've had the experience, perhaps, of saying something that afterwards you thought, well, that was barely good enough. And yet they have turned, and the light has gone on, the penny has dropped, and they've responded to God. It is our experience, what we may not like to do or care to do, is to recognize that behind that experience is God's judgment at work now as his word is set out in the world. Well, of course it remains the case that a feeble uh, expression of God leads to reactions that are peculiar. We may not want the idea of judgment and election now. Because after all, if it's really true that you came to God, not because uh, you chose the light to go on for you, but because it was God's work in electing you, then you're left with this feeling of, well, what do I do about that? And it's much easier to say, well, I don't have to do anything about that because I chose it. No, if you know that God chose you out of his sheer grace, out of his sheer mercy and love that came upon you, then you know you have no excuse except to go out into the world and to proclaim it, which is what's happening exactly for Isaiah here. God's grace and mercy has come to you, Isaiah, because I've determined it that way. Now you go and tell the rest. And leave it up to me to decide who listens and who doesn't. And there is just that tiny little bit of hope. Verse 13, or 12, Till the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken, exile. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. No relief to the dark yet. But, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. The trees are going to be cut down, but there will be a stump. And from that stump, 
like a seed, there will be new life. I once heard someone express it this way. Please, God, never let me be an optimist. But I do want to have hope. In other words, if we're optimistic, that expresses our character. And that's neither one thing nor the other. It doesn't matter one way or the other. But hope is when, God, when we recognize in the darkness that it is up to God to fulfill his promise and there will be light. God really is in charge of all human affairs. This is an alarming passage if we like to believe that we're in charge. What about the terrible doings in the world, we may say, if God's in charge? And we say it with a sense of outrage. But of course, that's not the great mystery. The great mystery is how on earth is anything good in this world if we are in charge, given that what we know about sin? The scale of our outrage is the scale of, our ch- of the challenge to our sense of being in charge ourselves. Well, let me finish with a little bit of history. Some of you uh, will be now, or have in the past been, at the UEA. You will know, perhaps, that in the middle of the UEA is Earlham Hall, was the residence of the Gurney family. Uh, In the 1840s, 1850s, uh, the Quaker Gurney family was led by Joseph Gurney, and there was, a, uh, there was a split within Quakerism. And the Gurneyites, a splendid name, wouldn't you lo- love to be part of the Gurneyites? The Gurneyites uh, were considered radical because they departed from the true faith of Quakerism, which was to be led by the Spirit in all things, and said, well, actually, we think that the, the uh, Holy Scriptures may be a bit important. Uh, And the Gurneyites had a hard time. Uh, And in the face of that, some of them ended up going to uh, America. Uh, And Joseph Gurney uh, spent some time in America. He lived in the UK. He lived in Earlham Hall. uh, But he spent some time in America, impressed the Americans, so that when he died, having had an extraordinary life, he was part of the anti-slavery movement, did all kinds of good things. When he died, his wife, Eliza, uh, moved to the States. Uh, And she went to visit President Lincoln in 1862 when the Civil War was underway in the States. And she had a meeting with him then and must have left a considerable impression on on him. Because in 1864, uh, Lincoln wrote to Eliza Gurney these words. Uh, reflecting on the mystery of God's purpose behind the civil war. And I suggest as we finish that these are words from someone who actually understood, like Isaiah, that God really is in charge, even though we have to work as hard as we can, pray as hard as we can uh, for God's purposes. He wrote, The purposes of the Almighty are perfect and must prevail. Though we, erring mortals, may fail to accurately perceive them in advance. We hoped for a happy termination of this terrible war long before this, but God knows best and has ruled otherwise. We shall come yet to acknowledge his wisdom and our own error. 
Meanwhile, we must work earnestly in the best light he gives us, trusting that so working will still lead to the great ends that he ordains. Let's pray together. Lord, we can listen to President Lincoln, and to our ears it can sound quaint. We are so much more able to change our world than he was, though no more able to change the human heart than he was. Give us, we pray, such confidence as lies in this chapter that you are in charge, that in this world your judgment and your election are operating, and be pleased, we pray, to use the words that you set in our mouths to use us as you send us so that that judgment and election will continue to be found. Forgive our pride and grant us to know that simplest of all messages that God knows best. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.